So Psalm 119 is the longest chapter of the Bible. And I'm under the conviction that it's the longest chapter in the Bible for a very specific reason. Because it's meant to have an effect on us by means of poetic repetition. And since 1 Timothy says that we're to commit ourselves to the public reading of Scripture, we're going to read the whole thing. So come back in 40 minutes if you don't want—I'm just kidding. Um, If you're using a pew Bible, it begins on page 957. And the little Hebrew letters with the English equivalents next to them are letters of the Hebrew alphabet because this psalm is what's called the acrostic psalm. And each section, every line, if we were to read it in Hebrew, would start with that letter. Every line in that stanza. And the next stanza, everyone start with that letter. You won't notice that in English. And I've invited Hannah to uh, read this with me. In case you don't know, um, Hannah's preparing in about two months to go to West Africa to do language missions work herself. So there it is. Psalm 119. I'll start in verse 1. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips, I recount all the ways, all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Do good to your servant, and I will live. I will obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. You rebuke the arrogant who are cursed and who stray from your commands. Remove from me scorn and contempt, for I keep your statutes. Though rulers sit together and slander me, your servant will meditate on your decrees. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. I am laid low in the dust. Preserve my life according to your word. I recounted my ways, and you answered me. Teach me your decrees. Let me understand the teaching of your precepts. Then I will meditate on your wonders. My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Keep me from deceitful ways and be gracious to me through your law. I have chosen the way of truth. I have set my heart on your laws. I hold fast to your statutes, O Lord. Do not let me be put to shame. I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees. Then I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding, and I will keep your law and obey it with all my heart. 
Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servant so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts. Preserve my life in your righteousness. May your unfailing love come to me, O Lord. Your salvation according to your promise. Then I will answer the one who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Do not snatch the word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings and will not be put to shame, for I delight in your commands, because I love them. I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love, and I meditate on your decrees. Remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. My comfort in my suffering is this. Your promise preserves my life. The arrogant mock me without restraint, but I do not turn from your law. I remember your ancient laws, O Lord, and I find comfort in them. Indignation grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. Your decrees are the theme of my song wherever I lodge. In the night I remember your name, O Lord, and I will keep your law. This has been my practice. I obey your precepts. You are my portion, O Lord. I have promised to obey your words. I have sought your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. I have considered my ways and have turned my steps to your statutes. I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. Though the wicked bind me with ropes, I will not forget your law. At midnight I rise to give you thanks for your righteous laws. I am a friend to all who fear you, to all who follow your precepts. The earth is filled with your love, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. Do good to your servant according to your word, O Lord. Teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I believe your commands. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Though the arrogant have smeared me with lies, I have kept your precepts with all my heart. Their hearts are callous and unfeeling, but I delight in your law. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. May those who fear you rejoice when they see me, for I have put my hope in your word. I know, O Lord, that your laws are righteous, and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. May your unfailing love be my comfort, according to your promise to your servant. Let your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. May the arrogant be put to shame for wronging me without cause, but I will meditate on your precepts. May those who fear you turn to me, those who understand your statutes. May my heart be blameless toward your decrees, that I may not be put to shame. 
My soul faints with longing for your salvation, but I have put my hope in your word. My eyes fail looking for your promise. I say, when will you comfort me? Though I am like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your decrees. How long must your servant wait? When will you punish my persecutors? The arrogant dig pitfalls for me, contrary to your law. All your commands are trustworthy. Help me. For men persecute me without cause. They almost wiped me from the earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. Preserve my life according to your love, and I will obey the statutes of, of your mouth. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You established the earth, and it endures. Your laws endure to this day, for all things serve you. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. Save me. For I am yours. I have sought out your precepts. The wicked are waiting to destroy me, but I will ponder your statutes. To all perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day, all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path, so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it, that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept, O Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. I hate double-minded men, but I love your law. You are my refuge and my shield. I've put my hope in your word. Away from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commands of my God. Sustain me according to your promise, and I will live. Do not let my hopes be dashed. Uphold me, and I will be delivered. I will always have regard for your decrees. You reject all who stray from your decrees, for their deceitfulness is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your statutes. My flesh trembles in fear of you. I stand in awe of your laws. I have done what is righteous and just. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Ensure your servant's well-being. Let not the arrogant oppress me. My eyes fail looking for your salvation, looking for your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your love 
and teach me your decrees. I am your servant. Give me discernment that I may understand your statutes. It is time for you to act, O Lord. Your law is being broken. Because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold, and because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong path. Your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. The unfolding of your words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do to those who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Redeem me from the oppression of men, that I may obey your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your decrees. Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. Righteous are you, O Lord, and your laws are right. The statutes you have laid down are righteous. They are fully trustworthy. My zeal wears me out, for my enemies ignore your words. Your promises have been thoroughly tested, and your servant loves them. Though I am lowly and despised, I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is everlasting, and your law is true. Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands are my delight. Your statutes are forever right. Give me understanding that I may live. I call with all my heart. Answer me, O Lord and I will obey your decrees. I call out to you, save me, and I will keep your statutes. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I put my hope in your word. My eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. Hear my voice in accordance with your love. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your laws. Those who devise wicked schemes are near, but they are far from your law. Yet you are near, O Lord. And all your commands are true. Long ago, I learned from your statutes that you established them to last forever. Look upon my suffering and deliver me, for I have not forgotten your law. Defend my cause and redeem me. Preserve my life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek out your decrees. Your compassion is great, O Lord. Preserve my life according to your laws. Many are the foes who persecute me, but I have not turned from your statutes. I look on the faithless with loathing, for they do not obey your word. See how I love your precepts. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your love. All your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. Rulers persecute me without cause, but my heart trembles at your word. I rejoice in your promise, like one who finds great spoil— I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous laws. Great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. I wait for your salvation, O Lord, and I follow your commands. I obey your statutes, for I love them greatly. I obey your precepts and your statutes, for all my ways are known to you. May my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. May my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your promise. May my lips overflow with praise, for you teach me your decrees. 
May my tongue sing of your word, for all your commandments are righteous. May your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let me live that I may praise you, and may your laws sustain me. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. Probably for some of us, that's the most Bible you've ever read in a row. So let's, uh, let's work through this verse by verse. Just kidding. When most people hear this, they'll read it one of two ways, and it really depends on your assumptions coming in. If you come from a more cynical, secular perspective, it sounds like the, um, the rantings of a self-righteous, religious person who wants everybody who's not like him to be killed by the smiting hand of God and for God to remember how fabulous he is and should make him blessed to be blessed in every way. And if you read it that way, I do understand that, but it is wrong. There's a second way to read it, and that is somebody who genuinely believes this and not in a self-righteous way. If you can't d- distinguish in your mind between righteousness and self-righteousness, then the, the category of self-righteousness that you believe in doesn't have any meaning. Because self-righteousness takes its meaning as being differentiated from actual righteousness, which everybody believes in. What this passage actually is, is the passage of somebody who is not so much mad at others, but who is re- reflecting on a, a very apparently fairly long life of loving God's written word. That's what, it, that's what it actually is Through lots of different ways And one of the things that Therefore I, I want to take from this And try to help us Maybe take more seriously and press in a little bit more Is That it's not going to be enough for us as Christians To Believe that the Bible is God's word His written word And it's not even going to really be enough For us to Even with some discipline read it what we really need is to love it, right? If, if, you were to, if you were to ask just a really simple question about this psalm, how does this writer feel about God's written word? You'd probably have a pretty clear answer in your head, right? He kind of goes on and on. He really likes it for a lot of different reasons, so sincerely that it apparently evokes action. That he obeys it, that he studies it, that he thinks about it, that he meditates on it, that he delights in it. Right? And one of the things we've got to recognize is for a lot of Christians, they go through their Christian life with kind of a lukewarm relationship to the Bible or no, hardly any relationship to the Bible at all. But God's written word is meant to be something that you cherish. It's meant to be something that you love. And I don't say that as another commandment like, listen, You better love God's word. I'm just saying it's, the point of the psalm is, not only is his love of it important, the point of it is that the Bible is, the written word of God is inherently lovely. It's lovable. It it deserves and it draws the love of a rightly oriented human heart. You can love it. You should love it. And it's not nearly as hard to love it as you might think. I remember, um, 
when I was younger, I grew up in a, I just cut a robed denomination where we didn't really read the Bible very much. It was actually read at church services when we did go on Christmas and Easter, but reading the Bible wasn't normally considered something that people in the church did. You didn't necessarily have a Bible, you didn't necessarily read it, and you didn't necessarily think you could interpret it. And so um, when in fifth grade I went to a Christian children's camp because I was starting to like girls and I was, you know, like really short, um, I thought that that would be great to go to a camp with more girls than boys. And so I went there and I accepted Jesus in the most meaningful and sincere and cliched evangelical Christian way possible, like a fireside with singing and stuff like that. And so I came home and I told my mom I'd accepted Jesus— because um, I didn't honestly really know all that much that meant. Um, but I was like, and, and now I'm going to be reading the Bible. And so my mom was like, great, except we didn't have one. So she went to the price chopper to buy me a Bible, which is kind of like going to cops to buy the scriptures. And um, she got me the King James Version in large print. And she just gave it to me because she didn't realize she had to, sens- to censor the thing for a fifth grader. And so I just started in Genesis and started reading. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, that's funny, so I know something about all of you now, is that in, that in Genesis, there's like fencing, fighting, true love, dragons, like there's, I mean, like there's incest, there's like murder, people killing each other, like all kinds of crazy stuff happens in Genesis. And so here I am, like in fifth grade, you know, at, you're going to bed at night, reading through the King James Version, sort of figuring out 1611 English and realizing that some crazy stuff happens in this book, Right? But I didn't fall in love with it. I found it interesting, but, you know, school kind of went on. But fi- at one point, I finally became a counselor in training at this camp because, again, there were more girls than boys. And one of the things you did as a counselor in training, because you're basically a counselor, was you had three breaks a day. Other than that, you were the kids 24-7. There were staff devotions where we sang worship songs and somebody gave their testimony. It was kind of a cool time. Um, there was a free period where you could do whatever you wanted for an hour. And then you had a devotional hour. And you could do anything you wanted as long as you read the Bible and prayed for an hour. Right? Which I had never actually done. And so, you know, I was at Beaver Camp, and there was this, um, you know, there's this swing by the water, which is where most people did their devotional hour. And I went out there with my Bible, and I sat down, and I opened it up, and I just started reading it, because I didn't have anything else to, I didn't have anything better to do. And I had plenty of time. It wasn't like, oh, I got four minutes right now. I mean, I had an hour. So I just sat there, and for day after day, for several weeks, I mean, I just read the Bible. And I, I, and it was, that's when I really fell in love with the Bible. I remember reading the book of Leviticus, which is supposed to be the most boring book in the Bible. Of course, it isn't. The, I mean, it's not the most boring section. The first few chapters of, of Chronicles is. But, um, but I, it was, you know, it's about this, the priest class of this ancient tribe of nomadic people, right? But it was fascinating because I realized on every page, it connected with all these other places that I'd read bits of in the Bible. And I was like, oh, that connects with this, and that's here. And, that, and I, I started beginning to remember, see the web that the Bible is, how it's referencing itself in all these different ways, and how it builds on itself as time goes, and how I just found it really fascinating. And from that point on, I read it, and I've really, I've really loved it. And it, that doesn't really come from the fact that I'm inherently virtuous. It actually comes much more from the fact that the Bible is actually wonderful. And it, it has drawn me to it. And the reason this is important, and the reason I think Psalm 119 was one of the psalms that we should talk about, is because you and I, we need to love God's written word. Um, There's a number of places in the psalm where the writer said that his belief and trust and his love for God's word has produced hope for him. Hope to trust in God. Hope to walk in God's ways. Hope to be strengthened. 
And I, I think if there's anything you take away, take that away. That a love for God's word fuels hope in God. And that's what you need. That's what I need. That's what everybody needs. We need an incredibly strong hope in God. And that comes from, if this psalm has anything to say to us, from loving God's written word. Now, when I alliterate, I go all the way. So, um, I want to talk, I want to break this down into three UDs, which is kind of like QDs. But it's UDs, okay? That the way, there's three ways loving God's word fuels hope. It creates in us an unshakable determination. I think I have these. An unquenchable desire and an unconquerable dependence. An unshakable determination to trust God and to obey and follow him. An unquenchable desire to know God and his ways more deeply. And an unconquerable dependence on God. Once we have those first two things. Now, let me say something really quick. Um, as you listen to this, if you're in a small group, take some notes for stuff you want to talk about more. Because listen, if your small group discussion is boring, it's because you're boring. Okay? Because, listen, your small group leader shouldn't have to say anything. John shouldn't even have to publish those small group things, those small group discussion guides. He shouldn't be able to say where the minute you sit down and the person says, what did anybody think about? Somebody had to be diving in at that moment and say, I want to talk about point one, because Nick is crazy, or I, I found this very helpful. I mean, somebody should, like, get in there because he's talked about the Bible, and about God and about how it relates to everything. And like, if there's just something stewing in you by the time you sit down, I don't know what's going on. And so right now, when you think of something you wish you could yell it out right now, just don't. Right? And write it, write something down and be like, I'm bringing this up in small group. I'm gonna, we're going to talk about it. And if the reason your small group is no fun is because your small group leader is constantly interrupting people who bring up genuine thoughts, just send me an email and I'll stop it, I promise. They will be heard from again. I, it's not that way, right? So first, that loving God's word fuels hope by creating an unshakable determination in trusting God. It creates an unshakable determination. Now, I know for the most part, we don't want to think of our lives as battles. Most people don't want to think that way. And the Bible does not teach that our lives are nothing but a battle. But the Bible certainly does teach that one of the things our life is and always is, is a battle. Now, you might not particularly like that, and I would just refer you to J.R.R. Tolkien, where Eowyn, the princess of Rohan, says, so Aragorn's like, they're getting ready to fight, and Aragorn's like, so you've got some skill with a blade? And she says this quote, the women of this country learned long ago, those without swords can still die upon them. Everybody would love, every, every woman in Rohan would have loved to believe that when the raiding hordes came through, the men would go out and fight them, and if they lost, all the non-combatants would be genuinely respected. Listen, I'm going to just tell you that the hordes of hell do not respect the Geneva Convention. You do not live in a spiritual reality in which you can afford to believe that if you don't fight, you'll be respected. Scripture says that, that, that the devil comes to steal, to kill, and destroy not, not uniformed combatants that hold Bibles with their names printed on them, but everything and everyone God has created and cares about. Um, your life is a war with yourself, your own sinful condition. It is, a, it is a war among the influence of people who will mock and slander the gospel and influence you away from it. 
And it's a battle against affliction. All the things that would come in and cloud out and block out the sun and, and be so painful that you wouldn't be able to think beyond it. All of those things are battles. And you're going to either fight them right now or you're going to fight them in your life a lot. And if you don't think of your life that way, you're not going to realize how deeply you need an unshakable determination that comes from hope, that is fueled by what God's Word provides. And you avail yourself to it by loving it. Now, there's three major um, things we need determination and relationship to in this passage. The things, that, three things that come up again and again and again in this psalm are one, he's at war with himself, right? The writer of the psalm is saying, I, he, right, there's lots of verses where the psalmist says, I obey your word, I obey your commands, I follow your statutes. And then other places where the psalmist says what? Help me see your statutes. Don't let me be taken over by this sin. Don't let me turn away and do this. Right? The psalm ends with, I have strayed as a sheep. And the psalm begins with, Oh, that my ways were steadfast, so that when I thought about all your written word and commands, I wouldn't feel totally ashamed when I thought about them in relationship to my life. Right? The, one of the greatest— But I preach about depravity every week, so let's keep moving, okay? Right? Second is resisting scoffers. Now listen— this is, diffi- this is difficult, and this is where we're going to actually have to be emotional grown-ups. Because none of us want to say and feel this way. We who believe in the Bible and in Jesus, we're the good people. And those people who do not believe in Jesus, they're the bad people. And so we can't, you know, and nobody wants to think that. No, so nobody wants to say, well, you know, they don't want to think in terms of righteous and unrighteous. Right? And I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. Because people outside of the gospel are always better than their philosophy dictates, and Christians are never as good as their beliefs would dictate. And to believe that we're the righteous ones and all those people out there are the unrighteous ones is going to create self-righteousness, it's going to create a total lack of humility, and it's going to make us deeply unattractive to the people in the world, and we're going to be judgmental rather than attractive to them. Right? But at the same time, man, it's hard to get away from that theme in the Bible, isn't it? That God's laws, statutes, commands, decrees, whatever, really are true, and they're righteous. Not self-righteous, they're righteous. They're good. They're beautiful. They describe reality rather than a fantasy. They are right, good, and true. And there are people who their primary demeanor is to make fun of that, to treat it like it's nothing, and to persecute people who believe in it in passive and active ways. And all through the psalm, there's a group of people there's, that are called scoffers, mockers, and so on, that are actively making this person's life miserable because he or she, since the psalm's anonymous, we don't know, right, wants to follow God's commands, wants to love the truth, wants to walk in the right way, wants to follow the path of righteousness, wants to do that, and there are other people that do not. And remember, the whole book of Psalms starts this way, right? How does Psalm 1, the very first psalm, start? Blessed is the man or woman who does not what? Walk in the counsel of the wicked, go in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of mockers, right? And a number of psalms through the Bible, there's a ca- this category for scoffers or mockers. And so we have to be, and, and listen, you might be like, okay, so, listen, this is part of being grown up. You've got to be a little complicated. Right? People who... who are ideologically enemies of Jesus and of what he says is right, good, true, and beautiful 
and who scoff it are scoffers. They categorize themselves in the biblical category of the unrighteous. They do stand as enemies of the gospel. Right? And at the same time, apart from Christ, we're not, we're not any better than them. And yet, we can position ourselves to really want to follow God and to follow his ways. And, and the Bible categorizes people like that as the righteous, even though they're not entirely righteous. But they're their heart is pointed towards God. They want to put themselves under God's truth. They want to live according to his ways. People who walk that path intentionally and systematically, the Bible refers to as the righteous. Listen, I have a, I have a, a fairly dear friend who, um, whose life very much stands against the gospel, but who is a neighbor to me and a friend and I enjoy this person's company, and I care for this person how I can, and we're, we're good friends, and that person would consider me a good friend, and I consider that person at the same time a dear friend and an enemy. And we've actually had a conversation and talked about that, and how that person feels the same way about me. Loves me, as a, loves me considers me a friend, loves me as a neighbor, and yet recognizes that we're en- we are enemies, too. And we have to exist in that dichotomy. Those are both true. And if you read Psalm 19, that's true. There are scoffers. They really are scoffers. They really are the unrighteous in that biblical category. They, they really are under the wrath of God. He really is infuriated by it. They really need to come to the one who is the true king to submit to his commands and decrees and to believe his good news and to follow him in faith. And we're supposed to be attractively seeking to draw people to that, and yet we have no basis for self-righteousness. Because all, all we are is we're being drawn by the truth of the God who speaks a truth that is more beautiful and more valuable than a thousand pieces of gold and silver, that is sweeter than honey, that is more boundless than creation, the fact that we can go, look, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and I, I, believe, I believe the gospel, I believe God's written word, I follow it, I'm so righteous. Yeah, it's like the person who thinks Cinnabon smells good. That's not, that's not some great virtue. Right? It's imputed to you. You received it. And so there's no room for self-righteousness, even when one believes in righteousness and unrighteousness. And, if, and you have to be able to distinguish those two categories. Otherwise, you're going to conflate all these kind of categories, and you're going to believe in these little cliched slogans of our culture and not be able to have a serious conversation about anything important with anybody interesting. And the gospel can free you from that. Right? Or no, you might not agree with that one. What that leads to is— Sorry, we don't have time for all this. What that leads to is a recognition— when you begin to love God's word and see the hope that it creates and it begins to build in you an unshakable determination, that begins to be refueled by an unquenchable desire to know God and his ways more deeply. There's a desire that can come from this that is absolutely unquenchable, and that's a good thing. One of the things that's important to recognize is that in Christian faith, there's a lot of good mysticism. That is, we believe in a Jesus who, is, who came to earth bodily, but who has ascended into heaven. That is, he's not physically present, right? We believe that we're indwelt by the power of God through his Holy Spirit, who we don't feel, right? How many people are feeling the Holy Spirit right now? How many people believe in Jesus? Okay. How many people actively feel the Holy Spirit inside you right this minute? Physiologically. 
Okay, so I know you're trying to keep your hand up on that one. I saw that. Um, so there's a certain amount of mysticism, right? Because you're not feeling it necessarily with your nervous system. So you're trying to relate to God who's really there. The Holy Spirit promises he'll be with you and indwelling you all the time. And so you're relating in this kind of way that you're not— it's not the way you normally relate to everything else. And so that there's a certain kind of mysticism there. You're relating spiritually rather than physically, vocally, right? That's real. But as you read this psalm, one of the things that becomes really clear is one of the ways in which God is, has made it so that his speaking to you is constantly and palpably present in your life is by leaving a written word for us to avail ourselves of. So that it is, it's, it is God's content presence among us. Does that make sense? See what I'm saying? That even when you can't feel God spiritually, and you might not spiritually hear his voice speaking to you, yet at the same time, God has left his, his spoken word with timeless content that we can constantly avail ourselves of, i.e. that you can read God's written word and God can be speaking to you all the time. Now, that might not be the specific way you want to do it all the time, and it's not the only way God speaks to people. But if you read the psalm, it would be very difficult to believe that that's not the primary way that God has spoken to this person throughout the majority of their life with him. He is constantly hearing God speak over and over in so many ways by listening to, learning from, reading, meditating on God's written word. And there's a hunger in this person that's really remarkable because apparently this person isn't that young, Right? It says that he learned, he or she learned to obey the commands long ago, right? Long ago I learned that your commands are forever. Remember that verse? And yet there's a verse in here that sounds really cocky. You remember, the, you know the verse I'm talking about? Where he says, oh, where is it? Oh, verses 98 and 100. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. That sounds a little, sounds a little arrogant, doesn't it? It's a little, you know, careful, your swagger's showing, right? I mean, but, but yet, you see what he's saying? He's saying, by listening to God's word and meditating on his word, it has, the, it has the ability to elevate me in my knowledge of God beyond even direct instruction from very profound and helpful teachers. The word of God itself has the ability, if I really attend to it, to do things in me that nothing else can do. Even other people who've studied God's word. There, it, it tends to, to point to this idea that listening to sermons— can never avail what is possible in you if you read the scriptures and think about it. I can help, right? But I can't do it all. Now, it's important to recognize that the way this ends up working is when you listen to the psalm, there's two things that are repeated the most. There's two things that get repeated over and over again in the psalm more than anything else. One is Teach me, which is directed towards God, right? So, so this person believes that God spiritually speaks through his own written word. That is, he speaks spiritually in the present by means of his 
written speaking in the past. The two come together. That's what this person is asking for. And the reason is that he delights in the word. He just, he loves it. Now, that brings up an interesting issue because for a lot of people, you would say, okay, wait, Nick, but here's the, here's the problem. The concept of delight is to be made happy in something without any effort. That's what delight, something that's delightful is. It creates lightness. It draws you in. It makes you happy without any, you don't have to do anything. And I don't know if you've read the Bible, Nick, but I do not find it effortless, right? Um, and I understand that. Um, but in Psalm 37, there's this verse where it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, that's not passive. That's active. And I think one of the things that you'll find if you think about your life for like one second is that most of the things that are consistently satisfying, that make you happy again and again and again, that they're not mere novelties, but they're more than that, almost all of them to some extent are an acquired taste. It takes a little time to get going, right? I mean, I mean, think about it. A number of people today or yesterday will, will either go home today and watch football or will have watched football. Now, who, whoever would turn on the TV, watch football being played, and go, oh, that makes perfect sense? Right? I was in India a few years back, and I was buying a suit in the store, and I couldn't get anybody to wait on me. And I was like, hey, can I get a thing here? And they were like, like okay, okay. Um, India is playing Australia in cricket right now, and so we're not going to be able to help you for about two and a half hours while this game is going on. Why don't you come back to the manager's office and watch the game with us, and then we'll get you a suit when we're done. I thought, that's not how it happens at the mall, but I'm in India. I got nothing better to do. So I go back to the back of the store with the owner and his son and like a couple employees, and I mean, meanwhile, the store's wide open, right? There's nobody even out there. And so we're sitting there. He, they bring in the chai, and I'm watching cricket, and I'm like, you know, like 10 minutes go by, and I'm like, um, how many times is this guy going to bat? The same guy bats like 15 times, right? And like, I'm thinking baseball, and there's like, oh yeah, well, he hasn't gotten out yet. I was like, you bat until you get out? Yeah. How many runs can you score? Oh, 200. I mean, it's insane. That's how it works in cricket. You bat till you get out. I can't even believe it, you know? And it's not like three outs. You go through, a, you go through your group, and then the other pre-field go through. It's on different days sometimes, right? But about, you know, about an hour into it, I was like, I was like, yeah! You know, like, cheering for the cricket stuff. Because after they explained it to me, it made perfect sense, and it was plenty exciting. You know, football, American football is the same way. Now, now I can turn to my eight-year-old daughter and say, baby, just, I do this to impress guests. Baby, what just happened? She'll go, incomplete pass. It's going to be third and seven to Michael Finley. I don't want to tell you. <laughs> I mean, she'll just say she's eight. Because I just, she knows, she knows the basics. She's up to speed now. It's not rocket science, but it took a little on-ramp. And you see, lots of things are like that, and Scripture is like that. You think the on-ramp is going to be crazy because it's this long book. It's written thousands of years ago by these people that aren't like you, and blah, blah, blah. It's going to be so hard, and it's a translation. Everybody knows translations are difficult, and it's, it's not that bad. Right? I mean, think, you can think about it this way like a bicycle, right? The first three pedals are the hardest, Right? I mean, there's only two pedals, but I mean, first three times around the pedals, right? Um, 
Right? So, and then it's kind of, then you're kind of going, right? And then it's not that hard. It's fairly easy. And then there's all the ple- pleasures of bicycling, like you're riding along, there's wind blowing through your hair. You can make, you know, give judgmental looks at the people driving cars. Even Priuses, you can just yell, infinity miles a gallon. <laughs> you know, you carbon polluter. I mean, you can, and that's just, you know, Madison, it's Madison. Judgmentalism is like one of our hobbies, right? So, Once you get going, you're going. And you see, the Bible is like that. If you have the right attitude, if you read the Bible, see, if you read the Bible expecting to find problems that need to be discussed in academic ways, you're going to find all kinds of pedantic questions. You can do anything. You read anything, and if you come, I'm going to read, if you don't read the Bible critically, you're not reading it properly. Well, that's, that's just one way to read things. And it's not a particularly helpful way to read things unless you're getting an endowment for it and people come and pay exorbitant amounts of money that they can never make back in their actual jobs to help you do that, okay? But there's other ways to read things. For example, the way you would read something for content. This has something I want to learn. I'm going to read it and learn from it. That's how we read most books when we're not in college, right? And if you read the Bible that way, what you'll find is an enormous amount of helpful things. Taught in quite helpful ways that are not that difficult to figure out. And every time you come back to it, the easier it is. And harder it is. That can only come from a conviction of value, right? I mean, think about this. Are there some things that are acquired tastes that you did not acquire the taste because you don't bear the conviction that it was worth it, right? Like, honestly, I don't smoke cigars. It's not, I'm not saying you're wrong if you do. I'm just saying that's an acquired taste, and I'm not motivated to acquire the taste. Because the question is, if I acquire the taste, what am I going to get from it, ultimately, Right? If I do a hobby, if I do something, what do I get ultimately? Is it a life? Do I get a lifelong payoff? Is it a momentary? I mean, what, does it make it so I can't taste my food? What does it do? Right? And so I haven't been motivated to, to acquire the taste for cigars because I like to taste my food. I like to be allowed to kiss my wife. There are things that withhold that, and I don't feel like the payoff is sufficient, especially for the money I would spend. So that's me. That's my decision. I'm not going to acquire the taste because I don't have a conviction of its value. Does that make sense? Now, you might have another conviction. That's fine on that one, right? C.S. Lewis smoked cigars, okay? I'm, I'm cool with it. But here's the thing. This is why taking from this psalmist what he says about the value of the Word of God written is so important. He says, teach me why. And can, over and over again, he rehearses and recites and talks about how valuable it is. It makes wise. It's like a counselor to me. Like all these other kings that, that want to attack me, they have counselors that tell them what to do, and I meditate on your word. It's like having this group of counselors that tell me wise things right there, right? It's, it's worth more than gold and silver. It's sweeter than honey. It's wiser. It's boundless. It's his biggest creation. There's no end to it. I've learned so much, and yet there's so much left to learn. There's, and he goes on and on and on and on about how good, right, true, beautiful, just, honorable. It is. And you see, if you have that conviction, it will motivate you to acquire the taste, which once you get going, will be self-sustainingly delightful. And you will get to experience the effortlessness of loving God's word, which builds hope, which leads to unshakable determination.
which feeds back into an unquenchable desire, which then leads to an unconquerable dependence. I have to do this kind of quick. When you read the psalm, it's very clear that this guy recognizes he's totally out of luck without God really being there. He's t- you, you, you might say, well, Nick, in some ways, isn't it dangerous to, like, love the Word of God this much? Because couldn't this guy become, like, a Bible worshiper rather than, like, a Jesus worshiper or a God worshiper? I mean, isn't that problem real? Okay, first of all, yeah, that problem can be real. Right? There are people that look so much to the Bible and they don't look to the God of the Bible. I mean, that really can't happen. But that's not what's happening to this person. The more this person drinks in the Word of God written, the more this person is recognizing his or her absolute dependence on God. Because, one, he's banking everything in his life that there's a real God out there that is going to back up what he said. And if there isn't, he's got problems. Right? Two, she recognizes she hasn't lived up to the precepts she studied. Right? In the very first verses, it says explicitly, If I was like those people who are blessed, then when I think about what you say in your statutes and precepts, I wouldn't feel ashamed all the time. Implicit logic, when I think about all the laws, precepts, statutes, and things, and I think about me, I feel terrible. And so, what I need is mercy. What lets this psalm writer know that God loves to show mercy to people who just simply will turn their hearts towards him? The Bible. The written word itself says that. So one of the reasons why he or she loves the written word so much is that when he he or she realizes how much he's failed to live up to the written word, the written word offers its own comfort that if he just turned his heart back toward God, God would forgive and save and be merciful Does that make sense? And then lastly, one of the things that he or she recognizes is that it's it's the most worthwhile thing. You can't leave. What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? I mean, it's the classic, remember? I think this is in uh, John 5 or 6 where Jesus says that whole bread of life thing. I'm the bread of life. And if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have any part of me. And people are like, well, that just weirded me the heck out. And half the people, almost everybody leaves. And there's the disciples there. And Jesus turns to them and says, you you guys going to leave too? And remember what Peter says? If you ever knew it in the first place He says where are we going to go Lord You have the words of eternal life You see So the more you know about God's written word The more it creates in you a sense of absolute dependence On the God of that written word Which ought to completely destroy self-righteousness Shouldn't it There's, There's no you that's winning doesn't matter how much you obey his precepts and follow his decrees. Your life might be totally characterized by actually doing that the best you possibly can, but you're still going to get killed by the mockers if he doesn't stand up for you. You're still a total failure in terms of living up to all of them without his mercy and love and care for you. And you didn't make it up. But you can't leave it because it's where the beauty and the truth lies. You're totally dependent on the God of those written scriptures. You love his righteousness, but you have no self-righteousness. It produces the opposite human effect that the mockers claim it must have. And it's really the only way that verse 7 really makes sense. Because right at the beginning, the psalmist says about being ashamed, and and then he says, I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. 
Now think about that. If upright heart meant I'm better than you, I do everything right, you do everything wrong, I'm going to praise God with an upright heart and you can wish you were me, right? If that's what that meant, he wouldn't say, as I learn your righteous laws, i.e. I don't even know them, much less do them. So what does upright heart mean in that context? You see, righteous and upright and unrighteous scoffer mocker do not have to do with whether or not you perform perfectly or do not perform perfectly. It is a category of faith. Is your heart turned towards God that you wish to learn from him, find out what's wrong, find out what he wants, find out what's good, true, and beautiful, find out what's beautiful and worthwhile, and live into that as much as you possibly can. Trust him to forgive all your failings. Trust him to draw you into what's right, good, true, and live that out with freedom and beauty and the boundless nature of his truth. Or you say, forget that. I don't care. That's not the way I'm going to go. That's the disjunction. So he says, I will praise you with the upper hair. All that is is a statement of faith. He's saying, I believe. My heart is pointed towards you. It's pointed upright in that sense. It's morally pure simply because it's pointed in the right direction. That's all. And while his heart, while he's praising God with an upright heart, the effect is going to be God is going to graciously and lovingly and carefully teach him and instruct him in his commands. But he's got nothing to say for himself. There's only one way that works. And it's when you start out by understanding how that mercy comes because there, there is only one way that works. And it's because there's one who already did what this person could never do and what you and I could never do. Right? There is one who did exactly this, who loved the word so much that he was the embodiment of it. He was and is the word of God incarnate who lived out all the commands, precepts, and everything. In doing so, he then had an unshakable hope in the Father's plan, such that he could obey, he could stand to the mockers, and he could obey an affliction all at the same time, on the same night. Right? On the same, in the, within 24 hours, he said, Not my will, but yours be done. Obedience. Was nailed to a cross where people said, If you're really the Son of God, come down from there. At whom he quoted the Bible when he quoted Psalm 22 in the midst of his affliction of being nailed to the cross. In fact, they came together identically. While he was suffering on the cross was the point of the most derisive mocking altogether because there is one who so was the word. He had so much hope in the redemptive plan of the Father for you that he fulfilled everything perfectly. His righteousness is given to you so that you can praise God with an upright heart, a heart pointed to him while he teaches you to obey his commands. And so the work for us to do is not the work of self-righteousness, but the work of saying to God, teach me, because I want to learn how to take my delight in you. That's what the whole psalm is about. And you need that. Because loving God's word, his written word, is what will produce in you the hope you need to be strong, to thirst after his truth, and to recognize your total dependence on him. So that in following the path of righteousness and even growing in true righteousness, there would be a decrease and not an increase in your self-righteousness. So that you could fulfill the verse where he says this. You remember this verse? He says, I wish that whenever people would see me coming, it would be good news to them because I follow your laws. 
Wouldn't it be great if everybody in this city, when they saw you coming, they didn't see an embodiment of self-righteousness coming, but they saw an embodiment of true righteousness coming. They had a brokenness and a meekness to it, but an absolute unshakable trust in the truth of God. That even if it was bad news, you were still good news in a way. Let's pray. God, we pray that you'd help us to take this time um, and turn our hearts towards you. We pray for the song we'll sing um, in, our, in our offering time and all this stuff, whatever we do last year. We pray that you'd help us to point our hearts to you. We pray that you'd receive them as upright hearts. We pray that you'd teach us how to follow you, how to know you, how to trust you. We pray that you would build in us a love for your written word so it would build in us the kind of hope we need. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.